How's it going, guys? Welcome back to the You Know Adam Sane podcast, where you get to know a little bit more about people, passions, and all things business. Today, I'm sitting with Dominic Hallaby, Associate Provost of the Commercialization and Innovation Group in Statesboro, Georgia. Is that that's, correct? That's close enough. That's close <laughs> enough. Yeah. yeah. So tell me what exactly that means. Uh, well, so really the big focus point for my job is mm-hmm. focusing on innovation, helping businesses be successful, grow, take them to that next level. Uh, and as part of this new responsibility with the university, I'm focusing very aggressively on our faculty. Mm-hmm. We have faculty that are coming up with some really amazing things, but we're not seeing them commercialized or brought to the market. Mm-hmm. So that's where I'm putting in a lot of energy. Let's see what we can do to be that next Gatorade, right? That's Something right. developed on our campus that just transforms the marketplace. And so for those that don't know, like t- talk me through what Gatorade did. Uh, well, so Gatorade was developed out of the University of Florida, right? So it was a concept that was really focused on helping athletes hydrate. And so you had scientists that really rallied around using technology, using their science to figure out a better way to get their athletes that edge, mm-hmm. right? Hydrate faster than they could if they were just drinking water. So mm-hmm. they could have that competitive edge. Well, those developed at the University of Florida, specifically for the Gator football team, they licensed it to the private market, licensed it to industry, right, and brought it out into uh, the commercial applications to the point that it was purchased by Pepsi. That's right. right. So that you had an opportunity that Pepsi now is the owner of Gatorade. That's right. And so really get excited when you see this is something that had true application at the university level, developed by university scientists. And it's impacting all of us, right? I mean, and I guess, like, you know, one of the questions is, like, I guess how frequently is stuff like that happening across universities? Is it just pretty frequently that, like, new ideas are being developed by the university and handed off to the private sector? Yeah, so the neat thing is, is because of the federal acts, right, you have a Bayh-Dole Act, which requires universities to be able to develop concepts, conduct research. They have a responsibility to, when available, right, to license that out to disclose it and bring it to the marketplace. So that federal research just doesn't go to universities and die. Mm -hmm. The idea is how are you taking all this money and can we help fuel economic growth regardless of markets? Mm -hmm. Uh, It's great in concept, doesn't quite happen as often as you would like uh, Mm -hmm. or I would like, but you really see it pretty aggressively in the biomedical space and life sciences where people are coming up with new uh, drugs that are being developed on campus and then taken out into the pharmaceutical market. And so uh, in, in the example of Gatorade, um, did the university profit off of the sale? Uh, they, well, they did, right? So off the license agreements, mm-hmm. there's really some nuances with the terms mm-hmm. that it helped fuel a lot of growth at the University of Florida. Apart from the financial benefits to the University of Florida, probably the biggest benefit is because it changed the culture in terms of how they view innovation. Mm-hmm. So in po- as opposed to thinking, I'm just conducting research in a lab, or I'm just conducting research for the benefits of this very myopic uh, process that I'm challenged with, they started to realize, wow, you can have some great impact, mm-hmm. right? That there are people out there, companies, entrepreneurs that want that type of intellectual capital sure. so that they can monetize it. And so I think that really helped catapult the University of Florida to a different level. And you're seeing a lot of those benefits. That plus other strategies the various presidents have put in place have really seen university climb up the rankings. They're one of the top 10 public, uh, if you buy into the ranking system, right? They're one of the top 10 public universities now. So you, you see a, just a lot of great things they're doing right. Uh, and so in my world, we want to be able to do that here at Georgia Southern. Start That's right. looking at ways that we can do it. And 
who knows? Maybe we'll have the next Eagle Aid I love uh, that. that people are purchasing at the market. I love that. Yeah. Uh, at Georgia Southern, you know, what are some of the challenges that you face in trying to do that for the local market? Uh, well, I mean, there, there's there's quite a few, right? Mm. Uh, but I think probably the biggest one is just that culture. Mm-hmm. People just don't understand what you don't know, right? So there's really this sense of I'm doing a lot of research from a faculty perspective and not realizing that it has com- it may have commercial application. And that's not necessarily up to the faculty to decide, right? So we're not asking the faculty to conduct research and think about how can this be applied in the marketplace? No, no, no. We're asking you to conduct your research as you would normally, disclose that research, and let's conduct commercialization assessments. We partnered with a great company out of, they have an office, local office in Atlanta, but they have presence all over the United States, working with multiple multiple universities. So they're going to perform that commercial assessment uh, for us, and they help guide us in determining is that is that just something that doesn't really have much commercial value, or do you have something here? Mm-hmm. Is there some companies, and they'll give us a list of companies as well as an independent third-party assessment on the potential value of that mm-hmm. uh, you know, product. So we're asking the faculty, I don't know what they're working on. And so instead of them thinking, well, nobody's going to want to buy this, stop. Tell us what you're working on. Mm-hmm. Let us decide whether or not somebody's going to want to buy this. And you, and you may so, be surprised. Yeah, and you mentioned something called the disclosure. Is that like a, a, a document? Is that What does that look like? Yeah, it, well, it is, right? So at every university, when people are doing something, doing a product that may be associated with their research or they're spending any degree of university resources on it or grant resources on it, they have an obligation to conduct this, what they'll call the intellectual property disclosure. That's just letting us know, right? Letting the university know, hey, I'm working on this concept. It it may be patentable. I have no idea, but I'm just telling you what I'm kind of working on here. And then we have an intellectual property committee that screens that out and starts saying, wait a minute. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about what you're working on. Give me this. Sounds like legal, right? Is that being like, once it's kind of like filtered through it, they're, they're applying for the patents, they're applying for the IP. Yeah, spot on, right? Okay. So yeah, gotcha. so our university legal team gets involved, gets uh, you know engaged with that, and then that the really nuance with it is trying to understand: Do you have something here, right? Sure. Uh, and then sometimes they do, which is fantastic, and we'll file the patents, or at least we think they do, file the patents, and then put those up for licensing. Maybe it's finding the right entrepreneur that says, "Oh my gosh, why didn't I ever think of this? Mm-hmm. Let me run with it." Sure. And then they just pay the university a royalty, right, gotcha. a right to use that technology. Or other times we'll look at it and say, "Gosh, as much as we love this innovative idea." Our commercialization assessment, everybody's looking at it. There's no real viable path to market, mm-hmm. in which case we let the faculty do whatever they want with it. Uh, but the big thing is just letting people know what you're working on uh, and somebody else gets to decide, right, or a group of faculty get to decide whether or not there's something really there. And, and just as a pulse, I mean, how many uh, disclosures has Georgia Southern had uh, in the recent years? Uh, v- very little, mm. right? So we, we don't have, so one of my big goals is um, when you look at other universities and you look at some of our peers and our aspirants, they're having well into the double digits. Mm-hmm. You know, depending on the peer, it's not unusual to see 20, 25, 30 as peers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, peer institutions doing this type of work in disclosing that and letting everybody know. We're in single digits wow. consistently. So then that's what I think, right, when you get to your first question is what's a big challenge? It's the culture. I mean, there's no way when I start rattling off the names of these universities, there's no way you can tell me Georgia Southern 
isn't doing just as innovative things and doing just as amazing things as some of these other schools. Mm -hmm. But we're just not have that culture of being able to disclose it, talk about it and letting it go through the appropriate channels. So, the, you know, right. Yeah, I think it was uh, but Wayne Gretzky, right. Mm -hmm. that you miss 100 percent of the shots you don't take. Understood. So if we don't get those disclosures and we don't process them through commercialization assessment process appropriately, put them out in the market, see what's patentable. Well, we're not going to get the next Gatorade, right? right? Simply because we're not going through that process. Whereas some of the other universities, it's not that they're doing great patents, but they're disclosing that process, letting them go through. And then you never know, right? You never know what's going to come up. So you've been tasked with really changing the culture yeah. at Georgia Southern. Is yeah. that correct? Uh, you know, I don't know about that. I'd, I'd go that far to say it. President Marrero is doing a fantastic job uh -huh. really, uh, you know, supporting because there's more to the university when you Correct. think about faculty, teaching, athletics, right? The social life, the sorority. For, there's so much to, to building a great university. My role is just so, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, specific. Mm -hmm. uh, really, it's just such a niche part of that. And Got so it. we're just trying to impact that little little piece of that pie in mm -hmm. which I get to touch. Fantastic. So tell me a little bit about, I guess, your story. How did you end up at Georgia Southern? Uh, how did you kind of decide that this was the place to be? Uh, well, I, I will say, in, in quite honestly, right, I was at the University of Texas San Antonio, was a director there. And um, if you think about what was happening in the Great Recession at the time, about 2008, okay. 2009, right, the economy mm -hmm. was a little bit in turmoil. Uh, my family was four hours away. So I took this position at UTSA in hopes that we would transition to San Antonio, which is actually where my wife is from. Mm -hmm. So we thought we were always going to retire and live in San Antonio. Uh, but because of the market, it was very difficult for her to find a job and transition the family appropriately into that space. So um, it was getting frustrating, right? Nobody wants to be four hours away from their family and watching their little kids grow up and missing all the games. Yeah. Uh, and so I had the good uh, pleasure of making a presentation and somebody in that, in that audience told me about this position here in Georgia Southern. And, and my first reaction was, I have no idea where that is, right? So where's Georgia Southern? Well, it's in Statesboro. It's, how far Still, is that from Atlanta, know. right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I didn't even think about Savannah. It's like, yeah. how, how far is that from Atlanta? Uh, and so it, it kind of evolved from there that I said, well, let's see what this is, because they did a great job explaining. It seemed very much like a peer institution to ours. And there was a degree of attraction in being able to say, I can live in the same city as my family and mm. be home in five minutes for lunch, wow. not just go to the games, right? I can go to all the practices, right? Just having that condensed focus. Quality of life. So when we came here, I started walking around and talking with a few individuals, had a wonderful uh, initial visit, uh, and then brought the family back, you know, to come through here. And we're saying, gosh, we have no family in Georgia. Mm. And then as I spoke to more people before accepting the job, uh, I remember telling my wife, I don't know if they realize what opportunities are actually here, mm. right? It's very different when you're in a major urban market, right? So when you're in a big city, like I've been in Austin or San Antonio or Miami or Silicon Valley, um, there's lots of people there that are looking at things differently. And I know sure. you're a California guy too, right? Sure. So you have lots of attention being placed on what you can do, where are the opportunities. But when you end up in these more rural markets, that's not necessarily true. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of the heck with low-hanging fruit. There was ripe fruit on the ground mm. that if we said, well, if we plan this strategy right, 
we could just go around picking it up and really making a difference right into the local community. So I could stay a, a cog in the big wheel that is the big city. Or I could really have an impact in these smaller towns in this rural market. And so uh, that was really the kind of the thing that set that light off to say, maybe we shouldn't just gloss over the prospects of leaving leaving Texas and moving over to Georgia. Um, and, and it's been great. So it's been about 10 years. We had great uh, successes, you know, a few challenges along the way. Um, but, you know, we launched and opened up the business innovation group, kind of formed that with all the business development units, created that platform there in, in Statesboro, in downtown Statesboro, where we now have our third building, mm-hmm. right? So we have the, all of our staff in one building, classroom space, right, where businesses connect, can have conversations, but then we have that incubator. Uh, and then that third space that we're about to renovate and improve, that has more of a civic center, right, to be able to have programming events uh, as well as that, that fab lab mm-hmm. where we can have more, you know, equipment and processes to get people to think about prototyping. Um, so if you told me 10 years ago that you'd go from, you know, the potential of having half a building that we started with to three full buildings in Statesboro and then add another building in Metter in collaboration with the state. So we have an agribusiness focused on agricultural technology which is phenomenal. We actually have more clients there. We're up to 28 clients. Wow. Doing $1.2 million in new CapEx. I think we're at uh, 78 jobs have been impacted there. And we opened it less than a year ago during a pandemic. And then we have another one under development. You know, they just broke ground on it about uh, a week, uh, maybe two weeks ago uh, in Hinesville. So, you know, we're really excited to be able to say, okay, we're making a difference, right? Uh, and it's just a start. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I, I work out of that space uh, in downtown. And a lot of people that I, I bring there, especially from the local market, don't even know that it's a thing, right? They, they, I'll walk them through. It's like, oh, my God, I didn't realize this was there. I mean, what, like, I guess how do we get more people aware that the space uh can be used and it's really meant for kind of the local economy if you look at kind of like the offerings that you have it's a business innovation group to help drive businesses to the area so that they can produce something that works right um i think you know being able to go out into the community and connect those people to the areas is great um so for example like in the Metter, which you said has like you know literally like grown uh I guess exponentially, just you know, with the short amount of time, what was the strategy that was used there? Well, well, so Metter's a little different in the sense that uh, when we started first doing the feasibility study, it was really about understanding what the community wanted, identifying the right key partners, you know, to have at the table, uh, and that one was very evident that we weren't going to be able to do it our own. We weren't going to be able to do it with just the city and the local market. It's a very, very small or a small rural community, right? Four thousand people. Uh, and the idea that you'd put a business incubator in a town of 4,000. I remember having this conversation with the president of Penn State that thought that I was probably crazy to be able to try to do that. Sure. He said you needed a degree of density. Um, and so strategically, we knew that we needed the right partner with access to additional clientele and could really help advocate on our behalf and drive additional clients into the space. That's where Georgia Grown came in. Mm. So we worked with the city to approach Georgia Grown to have those conversations, say this was going to be the regional hub for Georgia Grown, the only, only one that Georgia Grown is currently operating. And we continually are looking at bringing in newest strategic partners to help agribusiness, help 
businesses that are in the agricultural market think about technology differently. Mm. So we're in conversations with the uh, Center of Innovation in Agricultural Technology, which is a Georgia statewide program in their economic development arm, that they're going to start officing out of there and provide additional resources to our clients. Um, we're still trying to figure out how we can get UGA and Georgia Tech to the table sure. to be able to go onto that rotation, right? So to fill those gaps where we may not have internally, but to create that more robust ecosystem of clientele and resources. That space was really designed about being a convening space. So we do have offices in there, but there's a lot, if you walk in, there's a lot of open area um, where we can have events, and it's not uncommon for us to have 50, 60 people in Metter coming to an event to talk about, you know, whatever that business need may be. Mm -hmm. The one here in Statesboro is not really designed in that same way because we don't have as strong a vertical. It's more mixed use. So we really try to pay attention to not funneling everybody into that same industry, but how do we get the right entrepreneurs to be excited and to help really create a different dynamic? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that what we'll find, as you, well, you know this as you walk around there, there's, we try to get more people like Adam right, that are in that space that are already thinking, how can I be better? How can I scale? How can I grow my business? And we put less emphasis on the types of businesses, more emphasis on the entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when we do that, we need to start being able to think through how do we add value to those entrepreneurs. And so one of the things that we're doing is this big X, right, this little accelerator that Sorry. Catherine Blake is putting together. Yeah, to be able to bring these high-minded, really growth-minded entrepreneurs together and start tackling real challenges that we think is going to help them go from, you know, from one level of, of business, hopefully to the next, while also changing the, back to culture, right? Changing the culture of our community. That's right. That's right. So for you, you know, how did you find yourself in this, I guess, type of role? Like when you went to school, did you already have your mindset on like, this is the type of position that you wanted to do? Walk me through that kind of like... Uh Sure. So uh, kind of, and so I come from, uh, you know, my family immigrated into, into the United States. Where from? Uh, so they came from Haiti. Okay. So, so my kids, and we often joke, I was born in the United States, my wife was born in the United States, and my kids were born in the United States. That is the first time we can say that, I think, for seven generations. Wow. So I come from a long line of mutts. Right? Okay. So I have a grandparent who mm -hmm. is German, and, you know, so in Saudi Arabia, which is the last name, is Syrian. Uh, so we just kind of travel quite a bit. Right? Mm -hmm. So a little more nomads. Do you ever uh, go back to Haiti? I've never been at all. Oh, right? so, wow. so not back. I've, I've never been. So, uh, you know, it's, it's really unfortunate to see mm -hmm. what's happening in that country from yeah. that perspective. And we That's try right. to help where we can mm -hmm. uh, in terms of some family that we, I don't even know if we have very much family still there. But uh, when we did, we try to be supportive as they wrestle with the earthquakes as they do sure. now. You know, we try to make donations where we can. Um, but it's just a very sad type environment. Uh, but but when we look about how I grew grew up, each time, each generation, particularly on my father's side, they were entrepreneurs. Oh wow! You know, I mean, I have a grandfather, great grandfather, was the first one to bring ice cream to Haiti, right? Oh, so, that's cool. So exposing people to we've got this amazing ice cream sign right here, <laughs> uh, exposing people to ice cream in a Caribbean country, right? So uh, and then my dad did some contracting work for the defense and for the post office. You mm -hmm. know, so when I was a kid, I got to work with the uh, F-16 wiring harnesses. That's crazy. Uh, as well as some some uh, different rollers for the postal services. So, so he was developing that technology, or he was just working with it 
Uh, well, so it was his company, and so okay. they, when you deal with the Department of Defense, right, they'll put specs out and start looking for private contractors to be able to do that. And mm-hmm. So he was uh, fortunate enough to pick up a few of those contracts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and, and you know, even before that, he was one of the lead engineers that worked with the uh, uh, what. It's hard to imagine that they don't do this anymore, right? But the uh, space shuttle program, the mm-hmm. fuselage, right? Mm-hmm. So the big, if you see the space shuttle, that orange tanker, right? So he worked with the chemical composites and the fuel to be able to take that space shuttle up into space, right? Crazy. Through the, yeah. those booster processes. So, um, you know, and he was an immigrant, worked for the Air Force, uh, but always had a love for entrepreneurship. So when I went off to college, that was the area that kind of gravitated my interest, right? So I had a business in high school doing t-shirt printing. Oh, Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I I did my whole class t-shirts. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that was that was just a lot of fun. Uh Uh, And then in college, you know, I had the good fortune of being able to sell my first company. Uh Uh, So we were actually Was that a t-shirt company or what were you doing? uh, Publications. Okay. So we were doing publications specifically catering the laser printer industry. So at the time, this idea of recharging, recycling laser cartridges was very new. So we jumped into that space and being able to assist, uh, you know, startups and businesses moving that way. How did you juggle everything? So you had school that you were working on and you also had this... I guess, side hustle, if you would call it, the, the, yeah. the company. And then you were, what else were you doing during that time? Uh, well, so so one of the funny things, right? So now you say side hustle. Back then, you thought just just trying to make money and live, okay. right? To pay expenses. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think about it in, in kind of those <laughs> terms, right? So you just do, do a lot. You know, once I sold, sure. uh, before I started that company, one of the things I was doing was working, you know, worked in retail and jewelry, did did all kinds of neat things because you had to pay the bills, right? Sure. So um, we didn't come from a huge sense of means. So you had to work, you had to manage it and you try not to think about it, you know, too much, right? And so if I think about, well, how am I going to do all this stuff? Then I can sometimes get uh, paralysis well, yeah. by analysis, right? Sure. It's like, oh my gosh, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you just do it, right? You just uh, recognize those opportunities and, and jump in. Um, so my my course that really jumped out at me was immigrant entrepreneurship. When I took that at the University of Texas, it just kind of clicked when we started thinking about enclaves and we started thinking about the role that immigrants can have in any society by bringing their culture, infusing that culture and bringing with them certain sets of needs and international contacts, right, which can allow you to be able to identify new products into a market infusion. Uh, and it really just got me excited. So um, at that particular point, after I sold the company, I tried uh, a couple other companies that didn't really work out, you know, in that sense. So uh, it's, you know, learned a lot, probably more so from those failures than, sure. than I did from the successes. Uh, when you're young, you take those successes for granted. You think they'll always be there. That's uh, right. Uh, and so uh, it really just kind of clicked that I, I really enjoy connecting with people and having those conversations and being able to assist them in growing that business where I can. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's where that started to kind of change for me. Uh, and then I did work at a workforce economic development agency, led that along the border, took over the governor's, what they called at the time, the Rio Grande Regional Center for Innovation and Commercialization, which covered a territory that about 28 counties. That program was administered by the governor's office, but is no longer in existence now in Texas, um, but always had that that type of desire to help develop and create new businesses and uh, and I don't have the time to do that. And so I just get gratitude in watching other people like Adam launch new companies and live vicariously through you. It's super cool. Uh, you know, I want to touch on something that you mentioned earlier, which is this, I mean, and I connect with this a lot too, is this, you know, being an immigrant 
and also tying it to entrepreneurship, right, and business and innovation. I guess, you know, in, in, in what you have observed, I, I feel like there's a, like advantage in, in being an immigrant and also like, you know, it, it maybe it has something to do with the struggle, right? Like they understand what, it, what it's like in, in other parts of the country or uh, sorry, other parts of the world. And then coming to the States and having to fend for themselves, right? They, this is not just, you know, something fun that they can do. This is literally a means to survive. Um, if you could speak a little bit about kind of, you know, you, you mentioned like enclaves and, and the, the network and, and all those things. For you, what, what's the strongest advantage of being an immigrant and in business? Uh, well, so there's a couple things, and there's a lot of research that kind of points to that too. There's a, there's a lot of advantages, and some of that could be by virtue. If you think about the entrepreneur, and oftentimes people, sometimes wrongly, think about an entrepreneur as being a risk taker. And that's, mm. that's not always true, right? So an entrepreneur can be very reserved, but overly calculated, right? Where are you going to put this money? So sure. they're not just jumping off a cliff and saying, well, let's see if the parachute opens. They're checking that parachute multiple times before they take that leap. Uh, and so I think from an immigrant perspective, one of the natural things that come with that is if you're able to up your family and move into a foreign space where you have very little connections, may not even understand the language, there is an element of, I'm gonna do what I need to do to be mm -hmm. successful, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and that is a heck of a risk in simply being able to do that relocation. And so I think immigrants have that desire uh, and understanding that you're going to make that leap, uh, and whether it's across the planet or into a new industry, mm -hmm. th that's not as, as drastic. Also, when there's a foreign barrier, a language barrier associated with that, sometimes those opportunities to be able to assimilate are closed, mm. right? And so if you're struggling in, in understanding a language, well, you still need to eat. You still need to make, and to bar regardless of what type of visa you came un in under, right? Uh, you still need to be able to provide for your family. You need to be support. You need to stay active. You need to stay busy. So people have a tendency to default on the things that they came from, right? So when you come from a foreign market, you look around and you say, uh, why enclaves are really neat is if you're in an enclave of a bunch of individuals from Turkey, there may be cuisine, right? So Turkish cuisine, a Turkish delight mm -hmm. or chocolate that they had back home that they suddenly don't find themselves having here. So that creates a new opportunity and a new embedded market for them to be able to develop. And it's for people who may have barriers to be able to find simple employment. So a lot of that just is the development of necessitating that entrepreneurial growth, right? Just coming in. Also, when you bring families, you bring a labor pool with you, right? So as you do this chain migration, you're bringing people that, uh, well, you don't have to pay fair market, right? Because you have the family support family. system and yeah, you, <laughs> you do all these other things. Maybe the, the aunts and uncles sure. they just want to be in the United States. You've chain migrated, uh, but they can't speak the language. They can't find employment on their own, mm -hmm. but they're able to support your business and they're able to get that going and they're able to develop that. So it creates a stronger family network, mm -hmm. but it also creates new additional opportunities as that grows out. So I think there's a lot to be said from their desire to not only look at things differently, right? So things, exposure to ideas that they may see missing here, that they're opportunities they recognize about home, but also they have very little other options, mm -hmm. right? In terms of how are you going to sustain the family, support this broader network? So even though you're bringing in your aunts, your uncles, all these other things, well, they, they need to eat too. Mm -hmm. You're increasing the responsibility that, that you have. That's right. Yeah, 
Very nice. Um, changing gears a little bit, let's talk a little bit about advice. You know, there's a lot of people out there that potentially want to start their own business. They want to take their, get their hand on, in on the entrepreneurship, if you will. What would be something that you would, I guess, recommend that they always do? Or maybe a common pitfall, right, uh, that, that a lot of business people fall into, entrepreneurs fall into? Yeah, probably the first thing that um, when I'll see a lot of businesses or entrepreneurs struggle with is they'll latch onto a good idea. And they say, oh, I've got this great idea. If I only had a certain amount of money. Well, what they fail to do first is really understand that particular market. Mm -hmm. So it's like somebody saying, gosh, I can cook and I can open up a restaurant, but really not understanding what it takes to run and operate a restaurant, especially at the scale that you need to be able to be consistent, good quality food, time and time over and over again. So I think one of the things that I would advise most entrepreneurs, especially when it's this base level job opportunity, is to spend more time really understanding the industry that you're going into. Mm -hmm. Try not to get overly attached to the idea, but really understand what that job fully entails. So if you really want to work in a restaurant and want to own a restaurant, go get a job at a restaurant first, right? So really understand Observe. that dynamic, yep. right? Work, understand, learn, right? And so it's like many of the things that we'll do at a university, right? We're teaching people to do things. Well, how much greater it is it to still get taught how to do something, but get a check to do it, right? Sure. So, so if you think I'm going to open up a bar, I'm going to open up a restaurant, any of those things, work in that industry, build your credibility, build your understanding, and get paid to do that, right? So mm -hmm. you have an employment opportunity. So you get to learn by doing. Uh, and so I oftentimes would encourage people to just go that route when you can, mm -hmm. get that space. And then you can refine your idea to where you're not directly competing with what you've, uh, you've done. Uh, but you can learn from that process and say, well, I can make this type of restaurant so that I understand right, restaurant management. I learned from the best. Now I can you know, jump into doing that. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah, the, the other area that I'll see um, some entrepreneurs kind of struggle, as I mentioned just a second ago, is really thinking, if I only had money, mm. well, I, I mean, that is just such an easy cop-out, sure. right? Because good ideas, great ideas, things that the market is demanding aren't going to be stopped by your inability to get capital, right? Prove your market. Prove your idea, gain traction, get customers, hustle, do whatever you need to do. The money's going to follow, right? Mm -hmm. You still need to go through the process, make the request, and, and do those things. But you've got to prove the idea works. And an idea in and of itself really isn't that unusual, right? You can come up with a brilliant idea, but if you can't execute and demonstrate your ability to be successful with that idea, you're never going to get the money, right? Mm -hmm. Unless it's family, friends, or fools, right? They talk about those three Fs, that people that just don't know any better, those might be the ones that give you money because mm -hmm. they're really banking on you. If you can't get money from those three, focus on getting traction. How do I get customers? Even if I'm giving my product away, sure. I need to demonstrate adoption, right? So when you think of examples like Facebook, Facebook was free for the longest time. Didn't even really generate ad revenue. But it was all about Zuckerberg getting traction in the collegiate markets, getting in Harvard, getting in Princeton, and getting in Yale, getting into these, these established schools, and then demonstrating that there is a need for his product. He didn't run around saying, hey, if I had money, I could create this. No, first, create it, get traction, get going, and then you can start going into the marketplace with a much more compelling case. Absolutely. Um, what's, on the what's on the horizon? What's the future look like? 
uh, in, in your in your mind for I guess the business innovation group in Statesboro, Statesboro as a whole, Georgia Southern. Yeah, well, I you know one of the things that um, I really pay attention to is uh, what we're doing in Statesboro, what we're doing in Metter, challenges that I have in being able to deliver services over distance mm -hmm. is a bit of a challenge, a bit of a problem. So one of the things that we want to be able to do is bridge that distance, use technology more aggressively, um, because no matter how many entrepreneurs that I get together in Statesboro, it's never going to be enough to connect them to really high-level critical resources nationally or internationally, right? Nobody in the Silicon Valley is going to pay that much attention to, uh, you know, phone call from, from Dominic saying, I've got this great idea in, in Statesboro. Mm -hmm. They'll have the same reaction as me. Well, where is that and how far away is that from Atlanta, right? So um, one of the things that we want to be able to do is think about a broader network not just about individual markets, but one broad ecosystem. So the challenge that we're using is launching this new technological platform that allows me to connect any other location. We're starting with Meta, we're starting with Hinesville, but imagine walking in, you have a virtual kiosk, virtual receptionist that is connecting back to our office in Statesboro, how can I help you? What is it that you need? You know, once you walk in through the door, guiding you into your resources, which may be in that building, may be in our building, mm -hmm. connecting you in, in that space, connecting you with the experts, and then piping that information through these presentation classrooms that allow you kind of Zoom style, yeah, but allow you to that. be able to engage in class-by-class -class dynamics, more of a hybrid model. So uh, that's going to do a couple things for us. Not only will it strengthen those connections, but allow me to scale those connections. So our goal is to have multiple locations throughout the state connecting all the resources, connecting the entrepreneurs. Because then when I call the folks in Silicon Valley about valuations or processes, it's not about this one great company you have in Statesboro. It's, it's about, about the network. The network of companies throughout Georgia that we're connecting with Silicon Valley or Boston. So why, why, would, why would those, uh, I guess, other, how are you going to get those kiosks into, I guess, their facilities, right? So you're talking about, are we launching the facilities in each, every single location, or are yeah. they given a, a kiosk? How yeah. does that work? So right, right now, our challenge is we've got to get Metter connected. We've got to get Hinesville connected. <laughs> Absolutely. The, the, the facilities that we're operating. But um, beyond that, we're looking for grant support as well as looking for communities. And we have a list of communities that have already expressed interest to be able to house those in their incubator type mm -hmm. programs, right? Mm -hmm. So incubator, their business connection, business development process will have the kiosk, have the classrooms. And then in essence, what they're doing is paying similar to a SaaS model. Mm -hmm. They're paying us to be able to house that equipment there, but we're trying to work with various you know, contributors to put that equipment there. So they're not incurring that burden of mm -hmm. having the technological setup. They're just paying for the upkeep and paying for that access. Um, and then that cost of access, having a virtual reception, for instance, much less than if they had to hire a real Some reception, right? So, so we're trying to set that process up a little more aggressively. Our target is hopefully at 30 of these locations statewide to oh, build cool. that critical mass and be able to connect them in a much more structured environment mm -hmm. in a way that we can connect with buyers of markets. You know, and, uh, So um, instead of like Whole Foods, for example, right? It could be a great buyer or a Publix. Well, it's very difficult for our entrepreneurs in our agricultural space to get access to those buyers. But when we can do things for programming, connect Whole Foods in mass, mm -hmm. that becomes a whole lot easier. That's right. It's an easier lift on them, and it creates access that our clients didn't necessarily have. Mm -hmm. Very, very cool.
So with that access, I guess, you know, the, the main purpose is to, to drive, I guess, like attention to, I guess, this area with, with those 30 different locations um, in hopes of, again, like producing uh, companies that are large, right? Like, is that like the end goal? Is that, what, what's the end goal? Uh, yeah, right. So if we think about it, from a selfish perspective, mm -hmm. the, the end goal, quite honestly, for us is to be able to help diversify the state. Mm -hmm. um, if we take some, and by focusing on small, mid-range companies, it's very difficult to attract a large company and play in that space to come bring them into your market. We saw that with Amazon and mm -hmm. their HQ2 right setup. That very competitive, very costly, very difficult to compete in that in that market. But as what we're doing in a place like Metter with helping these rural markets, being able to add 70 some jobs. Um, Amazing. It, that's a huge economic impact in that community. That's more money that can flow through there that didn't do that before. So when we're able to help make those incremental increases, we're just diversifying the state. There's just way too much emphasis in Georgia, at least you know, in my, in my opinion, right? Sure. Too much emphasis in Atlanta. Mm. Everything is flowing through Atlanta. I mean, you don't see that degree of concentration um, in most other states, at least that I'm aware of, right? That that media market size. I know the Dean uh, Amison in the college business likes to talk about that media in media markets. And you've got the difference between the largest media market in Atlanta and the second largest media market, which is oftentimes Savannah or Augusta. Uh, it's huge. huge. That's a huge gap. No other state has a gap that big between mm. number one and number two. Really? So we need to really focus on how do we develop more of our state more robustly. Atlanta can't keep doubling in size, but Savannah can. Mm. You know, Augusta can. Statesboro can. Some of these other markets can have lots of bandwidth to develop and grow uh, without having to worry about major congestion and traffic yeah. right, and, and add to the new vibrancy of our statewide economy. Very nice. Dominic, I want you to. I want to thank you for spending some time with us. Um, I I really appreciate all the initiatives that you're putting out there. Um, I I've said this before to you, uh, and I'll say it on the show as well. I find it so refreshing to have a place in Statesboro where I feel at home, and I think for me it's such a rewarding experience to see everything that you're doing, and know that it is because you have been there that those opportunities are afforded to me. And I really appreciate that. Oh, you're, you're too kind. You're absolutely a great entrepreneur. You're the exact type of person we want in the space. So I'm thrilled to have you there. And I will say I'm a little disappointed. I was expecting sushi. So yummy sushi that, that was going to be here while we did this. But I'll, you know, it's never I'll too just late. come back. I'll, I'll whip it up I'll in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate your time. Yeah, Thank you great. so much. Thank you.